All right, today is traditionally what we recognize as Transfiguration Sunday. It marks the fact that we're getting to the end of the Epiphany season. Of course, Wednesday's Ash Wednesday, the beginning of the Lenten season. And I would suspect that over the years, you've probably had a lesson on any one of the three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talking about this. So this is what's known as one of the minor festivals of the church year, a pretty traditional text. And over the years, I would suspect you've had your own little aha moments uh, about the transfiguration. But it does get to that point where uh, if you cover the same ground, and that's not necessarily a bad practice, by the way, uh, but sometimes what happens is we lose or miss certain aspects of this important lesson. So what I'd like to do today is actually study some more peripheral events concerning uh, the transfiguration. I've already kind of intimated what those will be, and I'm going to focus on those two lessons that we just had and these two comments about questions. And the first one I described is the disciples asked Jesus' question on the way down, and then there's that event of the miracle healing at the bottom, and then they choose not to ask him any questions. And as I was thinking this through, what it uh, encouraged me to do was to remind you uh, that if you are at all familiar with the culture of learning here at Abiding Shepherd, one of the things we strongly do is encourage the asking of questions. Uh, and you've heard that a lot, uh, uh, especially in regards to the Q&A at the end of the service. But then there are other lessons I, I'll remind you, and Pastor A reminds you, you know, if you had a question about this, please send an email. Uh, when you get your uh, email each week with the sermon videos attached, uh, you're invited to ask any of your questions. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you know where that comes from, this culture of asking questions. Uh, and that has to do with some of my baggage, and it goes back to the, my early years of being trained to be a pastor when I was at prep school. Uh, even though I was raised in the church, my dad was a pastor. Uh, when I got to the teenage part of my life, I had a lot of questions uh, about God and, and about my faith. And so when I got to high school, these prep years, I thought this would be the perfect opportunity for me to ask my questions. In the appropriate classes, of course, uh, religion class and church history, I thought these were the, the correct venues for me to, to ask these professors, these learned men, my questions that I was challenged with and struggling with my own faith. But was I surprised when I came to recognize that they didn't really want to answer my questions? And I've come to recognize it's not that they didn't care about where I was at spiritually, and it's not that they didn't want to take the time to answer questions, but as professors, they had a certain amount of information, material they wanted to get through. Krause kept raising his hand and, and throwing a, a wrench in those works. So eventually, I, I, just, I just stopped asking my questions because I recognized that I didn't want to become a, a distraction or disturbance. But it, but it always... It always stuck with me. And I get this whole question asking thing can be challenging. Um, and I do get questions, and I love it when people ask them after the service. I also enjoy it when people come up to me and will ask them one-on-one. -on -one. But usually what I like to encourage people to do is, is go ahead and ask them at the end of the service. And I get why that's hard to do, asking a question. Raise your hand in front of a room full of people. Uh, one is, is we worry that they're going to grow impatient uh, you know, the Packers going to, they got the early game, so we better get home, hurry up, let's get done here. Or usually the other one is, is I think sometimes we think these questions are so simplistic, people are going to look at us and go, you should have known the answer to that question. I'm going to encourage you to ask them anyway. And one of the things I've learned over the years is, is that if one person has this question, uh, specifically in regards to the lesson for the day, I also usually run into two or three other people that have that question. And I always remind you, it's so valuable when you ask your question, even if it seems simplistic. Because it's going to be a benefit and a help 
to other people. And I, if this will encourage you too, I want you to know what it's like on this side of the aisle, if you will, when you ask your questions uh, for Pastor A and me. Uh, it's a little nerve-wracking to have to answer questions on the spot, uh, to think the answers up or, or to drill down into our memory bank of the things that we've learned. And, and one of the things I try to teach Pastor Abrahamson when he was vicaring is, don't be afraid to say, I don't know. We're, we're not going to just take you along for a ride so we don't look stupid. I look stupid enough, so I'm not going to worry about that if you stump me or if I have to go back and do some research. So please, be encouraged. Ask your questions. Which also opens up another category of, of questions, and I want to be very clear about this. Sometimes we ask the wrong question, but that doesn't mean it's a bad question. And that's something, I, one of my mantras, the only bad question is the one that doesn't get asked. Because even the wrong question begins the conversation, and it helps us to get to the right place. So you understand the difference between the bad question never being asked and the wrong question. I cite the question of the disciples. It was the wrong question, not because it was bad, but if you listen carefully, they're asking about what their religious teachers taught about Elijah. And they didn't ask, what does God our Father say about the role of Elijah? That's the right question. But their wrong question took them into an area where Jesus could certainly answer that question. All right, you get where this is going. We're going to talk a lot about questions, or maybe the questions we should ask and aren't asking. To get us off on that foot, I'd like to ask you a question. You know, I read the Bible every day, and it helps guide me. That's great. That's really great. How do you know the Bible is true? How do you know the Bible is true? How do you know if the Bible is true? Let's talk about it. I share this little parody of asking questions with you simply to remind you that most of our fears about asking questions are in our own heads, not in the minds of other people. I have yet to see anybody fall on the floor laughing when anybody has asked a question here. In fact, what I usually see are expressions on people's faces going, that's a pretty good question. Of course, they were too afraid to ask it, so again, the only bad question around here is the one that you don't ask, which at this point, you're probably asking a question, what on earth is the answer to that question? How do we know the Bible's true? Since that's a fundamental starting place for all of us, it offers me the opportunity to give you the answer. The one that most of us will get, and it's a correct answer, is number one, that the Bible itself proves its truth, its validity, uh, that the internal evidence, if you really study it, it shows you that it is God's word. Uh, 
Now, most people look at that and go, wait a minute, you're saying I need to believe this book because this book, book says I should believe it. That's what's known as a circular argument. In the minds of most people, they simply reject it. So what I'd like to do is just give you some more validation on what that actually means. If you look at the accuracy of the language which God chose and the precision of the grammar, if you take a look at the continuity, not just through one book of the Bible, but through 66 books of the Bible, that the message never gets off track, never wavers. If you look at the list of perfect prophetic fulfillment, and if you look at the way in which this word and only this word impacts the lives of millions of people again and again and again, at very least, we need to stop and go, there's something extraordinary about this book. In fact, if you look into this book, you will find that by any legal definition, there are more eyewitness testimony. It would stand up in any court of law. And the reason why I cite 2 Peter 1.17 is because that's Peter's inspired recollection of what he saw on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. It proves itself in the sense that Peter is putting down eyewitness testimony. I was there. I saw these things. And then one other one, and this isn't the reason why we believe the Bible's true, but if you're having a conversation with somebody about why you believe it, oftentimes people will raise these objections, like they've never found Noah's Ark. They've never found the Ark of the Covenant. Well, there has been no archaeological discovery that has ever disproved one passage of the Bible. In fact, it's done just the opposite. And that little stone up there, for years, people contended with the idea, idea of David being king of Israel and that his kingdom was is as large and powerful as it was because there was no evidence. They had never found anything. That rock found in the last 10 years has one phrase on it which has turned that conversation upside down. It says the house of David found in the area of Jerusalem and all of a sudden people have to rethink, you know what, maybe there's something in this book. At which point you're asking the question, what does that have to do with the transfiguration? Well, as I read the words of this lesson, I hope your first aha comes to you. Because while we'll talk about what happened on top of that mountain, we're going to take a look at what it actually did for the people's lives who witnessed it and ultimately heard about it. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. These two little verses, this simple information, can provide for us such an aha moment when it comes to this pretty well-known topic of the transfiguration. So we set the context correctly. What we do is actually pick up from last week's lesson. Last week's lesson centered on the events that were taking place in the upper room Monday, Thursday evening, as Jesus conversed with his disciples. He exposed the betrayer, Judas. He gave us the Lord's Supper. And then the conversation continues. Well, today's lesson actually takes place a little later in the evening. They've now left the upper room. Jesus and his disciples are traveling through the city of Jerusalem, and they're heading towards the Mount of Olives. The next stop is the Garden of Gethsemane, and you all know what happens after that. He's arrested and beginning the trials that ultimately leads to the cross. There's something else, though. There's a larger context here we need to understand. This one comes from two weeks ago in that AHA lesson. We were talking about the, the retirement to the North ministry part of Jesus. And one of the things that we talked about a little bit but didn't bring out as much detail as we have here are these two different conversations which took place. You see, in the last six, seven months of Jesus' ministry, he's ramping up his education of the disciples about what it means for him to be Messiah. And I've noted the first one comes before the transfiguration, the second one comes after the transfiguration. It was during this retirement that the transfiguration took place. 
And what it exposes is the miseducation of these disciples and what they understood about Messiah. Because in each instance, he's starting to give greater and greater detail about what it means for him to be Messiah and how it would culminate at the cross in the empty tomb. And in the first instance, before the transfiguration, Peter yanks him aside and scolds him. Quit talking this way, Jesus. And then the second one, even after the transfiguration, it's clear they still weren't getting it. And sometimes they would ask him about it, and more often than not, they didn't, because they didn't even know what question to ask. What Jesus was saying was so foreign to them. It just just didn't compute in their minds. It didn't register. All right, there's also one other one that uh, I hope you understand, and this is in connection with last week's lesson. Uh, About a week before the upper room, Jesus again had one of these conversations with the disciples. Uh, They're on their way to Jerusalem for Holy Week, for the Passover. And along the way, once again, he spells out in greater detail what it meant for him to be Messiah. The reaction, James and John come to him and say, hey, Lord, when you enter into your messianic kingdom, One of us wants to sit at your right hand. One of us wants to sit on your left. We want your two most powerful positions of glory and honor. Something is not connecting with these men. And that's what we need to understand and where we'll get some application for our lesson today. There is one other one I want to call into your uh, uh, attention to. And it has to do with earlier in the evening. And, And it's a little bit layered, but it makes sense once we work through it. Jesus was talking about this, just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. What's that about? He he spoke about that in the upper room. What he's referencing is a conversation he had had while at the temple, teaching in the courtyard, and the Jews were actually pushing him back against his claim of Messiah. And it was that conversation to which Jesus is responding. And he's saying, you're not going to figure this out until you actually nail me to the cross. And even then, they wouldn't fully comprehend what they were doing. Some eventually did get it. Well, it was in that conversation that Jesus says, as Messiah, I share equal authority with God the Father, and I have his eternal attribute of always having existed. And it's at that point, and I want you to understand, it wasn't just the 12 disciples. It was all of Jewish society, which had miss something about the message of Messiah. They're so upset with him, they pick up stones and they're going to stone him to death right there. Well, Jesus miraculously disappears right in front of their eyes and obviously it wasn't time for his death and for his continued work of Messiah. And then there's one other thing Jesus says that night before we get to our lesson and he says, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language but will tell you plainly about my Father. On several instances of Monday, Thursday evening, Jesus had promised to send the Holy Spirit. And that's the short-range answer to this question, what, when's he talking about? It wasn't until Pentecost that all of these dots ultimately were connected for the disciples, and they begin to understand the things that he was explaining to them. But he's also talking about a far-ranging date, and that's Judgment Day, when finally all of our questions are answered. Uh, when all of this makes perfect sense, when we can finally have the divine perspective that Jesus and the Father shared from eternity about God's entire plan of salvation. I am longing for the day when all of a sudden these little areas of confusion and, and where in my own mind I couldn't, I couldn't quite make things work out, all of a sudden they're going to be coming plain. For years I've tried to teach the concept of Trinity. Uh, to, to your children. How do you get one plus one plus one equals one? And it's beyond human comprehension. I am waiting for that moment I can slap my head and go, oh, it's so easy. Why did I struggle with this so? Because I'm on this side of the land of promise. 
All right, so our first line, Jesus' disciples said, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. That exposes where this confusion is coming from. It also shows us something about the observational skills of the disciples. They come to this realization that Jesus talks to them differently when he's just having a conversation, like nice weather we're having, or when he's trying to actually explain these abstract concepts of God's truth and the plan of salvation. They're noting, whenever you try to teach us about Messiah, Lord, you do this interesting thing, and the Greek term talks about speaking words and then laying a picture alongside of it. We simply refer to it as teaching with illustrations, and we still do that all the time. So when we try to teach this concept of Trinity, we typically will use the illustration of a, a triangle, though it's not a perfect illustration, and there is no perfect human illustration to explain or describe our amazing God. It helps us, at least in a little way, to figure out what it's about. Jesus was doing this again and again and again with the disciples because he is explaining abstract concepts, but there's something else going on here. It's more than this just being meaty doctrine. It has to do with the way they were educated about who God is and what our relationship's about. In fact, let's answer that question about Elijah now just to show you how confused these men were. See, on the way down, they're asking that question about Elijah, and it's not until the end they start to figure out, oh, John the Baptist. But you need to understand that their religion had been teaching them for years confusing things about Elijah as God's prophet in his ministry. One good example of that is, if you will, what was Elijah's ministry and what was John the Baptist's ministry. And while they were very separate in and of themselves, if you take a step back and look at it, well, obviously, Elijah becomes an illustration of John the Baptist. He's a picture of what God was going to do with the forerunner of Messiah. So to try and understand that God's not just going to throw the Savior at the world, but he's going to roll out the red carpet so the world recognizes the Savior when he comes, John the Baptist's ministry was very parallel to that of Elijah. That's why they're both referred to as the one who would turn the hearts of the children back to their parents. Because ultimately it was the parents' responsibility to teach the children about God's promise of salvation. These were the men that God used to help turn people around. But that's not what they had learned. They had learned some pretty strange things about Elijah. And so in a sense, their question's okay. What is it that our teachers are saying? But better, the question would be, what does God's word teach about Elijah? One example of how confused they were has to do when Jesus was ready to give up his life on the cross. And you know those four words, most likely. Aloy, aloy, lamasabachthani. And they're completely confused what he's saying. Part of that can be attributed to the fact that he's speaking both Hebrew and Aramaic. And not everybody got that at the foot of the cross. But more so, the confusion comes from the fact that the rabbis over time had taught that because Elijah went directly to heaven without not dying, they invented this teaching that at the moment of a true believer's death, Elijah would show up and safely transport that person into the messianic kingdom. It's nowhere to be found in the Bible. There's no doctrine books that have that. They just made it up. And so you understand, this isn't just a one-off or just some confusion that the disciples had. This actually became part of their worship life. Eventually, over time, the Passover meal, one of the highest festivals of the Jewish calendar, was changed. You're going, what? 
Well, there was a chair added at the Passover table that was always left empty, known as Elijah's chair. And traditionally, you would have four cups of wine at the Passover feast. And over time, they added a fifth cup, known as Elijah's cup, and nobody ever drank from that cup. Because in the same way that they had been taught that Elijah supposedly would show up at the death of one believer, they also were taught that Elijah would show up moments before the final judgment and safely transport them all into the messianic kingdom. And it all comes down to a misinterpretation of this one verse in Malachi, I will send, the great, send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day. They had taken such a simple truth and twisted and formulated it into something that had no, nothing that resembled anything like what God had promised about Elijah and John the Baptist. Now, where does this all come from? And it goes back to a much more dangerous and deceptive false teaching. And that's the concept of the Jewish religion for eternity. Some of this is a, a bit of repetition. You've heard these things before, but it's good to review where the disciples are coming from with their questions. The Jewish religion had gotten to the point where it rejected the biblical teaching that after this life there are only two options, heaven or hell. And that you were in one of those kingdoms based on your spiritual relationship with God. What they took was this simple truth and turned it upside down so that the Messiah wasn't coming to save us from our sins and rescue us from death and hell. The concept of Messiah that these disciples were trained in is that Messiah was coming not to die, but to rule over a messianic kingdom. And what that meant in their minds was, at the end, God was going to elevate, once again, Israel to a position of great honor and importance. They would be the most glorified nation on the face of this never-ending worldly kingdom, and then every other nation would be subservient to the nation of Israel. And then it went one step further. Your place in this greatness of Israel, your rank in this messianic kingdom, was based solely on your goodness and how godly you chose to live your life. And the conditions of that goodness and godliness wasn't to be found in the Bible, but in the teachings of the Jewish rabbis. That's how you end up with the Pharisees. That's how you end up with the Sadducees. That's how you end up with the Essenes and all of these other splinter groups of the Jewish religion. And so you understand when the uh, disciples are asking their questions of Jesus and why they're so often the wrong question, it's becoming, they're coming from a place of ignorance and, and miseducation because what they had learned, what was so ingrained in them, was nothing but a lie. That's why they're so confused. That's why when Jesus talks about this suffering and this dying, and that, that's why they're afraid to ask their questions at times, because what Jesus was saying was so far away from what they had been taught. They were taught a Messiah who lives forever, a Messiah who doesn't even know he's going to be Messiah until God lets him know, you're the Messiah. A Messiah who's going to gather together his chosen people and lead them as a great nation on earth. And all of a sudden, the man who claims to be Messiah says, we will suffer, he will suffer and die? Nonsense. And so you appreciate just how ingrained this was in them. This was a religious belief they had been taught. Even after the crucifixion, even after the resurrection, even after 40 more days of education, as Jesus is preparing to visibly ascend into heaven, they still ask this question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Hopefully now the theme that I set up for today's lesson, you understand a little bit better that sometimes our religion gets in the way of our faith. Because the answers that they were seeking 
uh, often came from their religious background and not from their spiritual education as far as the Word of God goes. Now, so you understand, and let me clarify, even the wrong question is not a bad question because you notice every time they ask the wrong question, the Lord parlays that into a great discussion about the truth. That again and again and again and again, he tries to uneducate them of the lies and tries to explain to them this master plan, this brilliant plan of salvation. That from the very beginning, as soon as this creation was ruined, as soon as God's creatures decided we knew better than the creator himself, from the moment death and destruction became our reality, God promised, I'm going to fix this. You can't. I'm going to fix this. I promised to send someone, Messiah, the promised one. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And as he tries to explain to the disciples what fulfilling that promise meant, that incorporated these discussions on the suffering and the dying of God's own son. Now, let's just have a few honest moments here because it's always easier to talk about these things when we start pointing fingers at other religions or other churches. But I think we should probably take a few moments to be brutally honest with ourselves and recognize that that happens to us too. Uh, have you ever noticed that almost every religious argument comes down to who's wrong and who's right? Let that sink in. Who's wrong and who's right? It's rarely about what does God actually say. Of course, that comment then leads to another question. Well, who's got the proper interpretation of God's word? Who's reading the Bible the right way? And how can some churches get it so wrong? Let me just take a moment here to explain to you one of the reasons why you get more than your fair share of Hebrew and Greek in these lessons. Because there needs to be no middleman between what God says and what you hear. I understand my role as an educator and as somebody who's trained to work with these languages. But the reason you get those words up on the screen is so you go home understanding exactly what God said, not what some old guy thought it said or what some well-trained minister wants it to say. You get to know what God actually says so that you can own your faith and so that it isn't determined by some religion or some religious teacher. Because we're talking about your eternity. And as much as sometimes we get caught up living our lives in this world, we don't believe what the Jewish religion taught. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And that it's based not on who we are, but who God is and whether or not we have a spiritual relationship with this creator. This creator who loves us so much, he decided he wanted to rescue us, not destroy us, but to continue to love us. And so he made his promise. And that's why we constantly review what that promise is, because it is so easy for us as simple-minded human beings to get off track, because there's certain things that, because we want to play God, we try to make God say to us, to give us excuses to live our lives how we want to live and so we can kind of in the end decide what's right and what's wrong and, and what should be good enough for this God. A God who accepts nothing less than perfection and holiness. And so, of course, he had to send his son because none of us can do that. I want you also to understand that this might be maybe my greatest aha moment through all of this. And I want to share it with you. And I, I don't want to make this overly complicated, but it takes a little bit of work to get there. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with this, uh, this theory called schema theory. It comes from a Greek word. We'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, if you are, then you've you got a, a leg up, but for the rest of you, don't worry. If you've never heard of schema theory before, uh, we'll take care of that in just a minute or so. 
Um, but one of the reasons why I wanted to spend just a little bit of time in connection with this lesson concerning the transfiguration, I want you to understand that oftentimes what we see is the glory of Jesus come shining through, and that's all well and good. It, it, was, it was useful for the disciples, but recognize it didn't get them over the top as far as their understanding of who Jesus was and, and why he had come. As much as we celebrate the transfiguration, honestly, I think there are a lot of things about it that we've absolutely missed. One of them has to do with the transfiguration shows us the amazing love of our God. That when he created us, he created a way for our head to function with our heart. And, and think about this. He created us in such a way that it would have worked beautifully in a perfect world. It was so well designed. And that's how it should have been. But he also created the head and the heart in such a way, with such a design, that even if we chose to destroy that creation, it could still function in a way so that we could grasp the truth of how much God loves us. Just think about that. God had a contingency plan for a world with no sin, and boy, I wish we could have experienced that for a little bit, but he also created us in such a way where we could function and have a meaningful relationship with our God in a world that is completely broken and messed up. Hopefully this starts to come together or I can connect a few dots for you once you better understand what the schema theory is. From the moment that we are born, we are given a ton of information. Our parents speak to us in a language that we have no pre-programmed understanding of. But eventually, we are taught the rules that we eventually follow, and we witness memories that soon become subconscious lessons. So as we grow up, the language becomes a way of communicating with people around us. We apply the rules that we have learned to similar situations, usually without question, and our memories shape the way we perceive the world around us. But how does our brain organize all of this information? How can we easily find the rules for behaving at a country club and then apply them to how we behave in similar situations. For the answer, we turn to schema theory. Now this video is all about schema theory, how it helps our mind function, and how something called schema shape the way that we see the world. The more you know about this thing called a schema, the easier it will be to understand your mind and make the best judgments around you. So let's start off with what are schema, or what is a schema? It's not the easiest concept to grasp without using a metaphor. So think of your mind as a filing cabinet. Inside of that filing cabinet is everything that you've ever learned, ever experienced, or witnessed. Every piece of information is a schema. Now, schema are a framework that we can use whenever we take in new information and seek to make sense of it. So think of a schema as little index cards that represent a concept. One index card schema could encompass everything you know about Alex Trebek. Another schema could encompass everything you know about Oxford commas or how to behave at a restaurant. Schema help us organize our thoughts and make it easier to pull from them whenever we process new information or memories. I'll go into a little bit more about how it works later, but right now you just need to know that schema help organize the mind. So what about the history of schema theory? Well, schema is an abstract concept, so there's not exactly one exact psychologist responsible for creating schema theory, or one part of the brain that you can remove that destroys your schema creating ability. Psychologists like Frederick Bartlett introduced the concept of abstract frameworks in the mind that organize information, but at the time, no psychologist really had a name for him. The term schema is actually credited to John Piaget. Piaget was crucial for developing theories on how the mind works and the process of something called cognitive development. He is famous for his work with children, and I've actually read some of his work. He was obsessed with understanding the child's mind and how it grew. I think something that's interesting is that children grow the most. Whenever we become adults, we usually stop growing. So if we can understand how that growth process happens, we can then apply it later in our adult lives to continue growing just as quickly. Now Piaget observed as children develop schema and use them like building blocks. 
blocks. What starts out as very simple schema eventually become more complex and begin to explain a longer list of concepts in the world. Schema are comparable to beginning beliefs you have about life. The first time a child attends a birthday party, for example, they may not really have a solid schema for what happens at a birthday party. And through their experience at the party and maybe by listening to their parents explaining what is happening, they start to build the schema or the idea or belief about what a birthday party is. And the next time they hear about a birthday party or they get an invitation as an adult, they'll have more of an abstract idea of what a birthday party is and how they should behave. Now, birthday parties actually fall under the category of something called a script schema, or a type of schema that comes with a script. Other types of script schema include the concept of ordering at a restaurant, behaving at a sports game, or experiencing a breakup. And there's many different types of schema, like object schema, which is information about things, social schema, which is information about groups of people, person schema, which is specific information about a single person, role schema, which is how to behave, it's kind of like you can put on a mask in different situations, and trait schema, which is information about what one trait means. So I think it's important to understand that we as humans are meaning-making creatures, but our mind wants to make that meaning, that purpose, without a lot of work and effort. That's why the mind pulls from schema. They allow us to fill in the blanks and paint a picture of an event or a person. We don't exactly have to repaint that picture every time we meet a new person or go to a birthday party. It's kind of like autofill, but for ideas. This saves us time and energy, but it can also produce inaccurate judgments. Now, this is both a positive and a negative trait of schema. Because we've all heard of some version of this riddle. See if you can guess it. A father and a son were in an accident. Very sadly, the father was killed immediately, and the son was brought to the hospital for surgery. In the operating room, a doctor came in, looked at the boy, and said, I can't operate on him. He's my son. Now I'm going to give you a few seconds to think about that. Most people, if they've never heard this riddle before, they cannot answer it correctly. And it goes to show how deep biases are in our brains whenever we process information. So have you figured out who the doctor is yet? The answer is that the doctor is the boy's mother. Unfortunately, due to your typical picture or a schema of what a doctor or a surgeon is, most people do not attribute the title to a woman or a mother. The picture of a doctor you have in your mind is actually the schema that you have built for a doctor. And for most people, the picture of a doctor is a man wearing a white lab coat and a stethoscope. That is the picture that we bring to mind whenever we hear the word doctor. Now, this is where schema can become problematic. By pulling from past schema, we may close ourselves off to information or thoughts that contradict what is in our index card of a concept. So, in short, a schema can actually limit us. Stereotypes, limiting beliefs, and old ways may be formed by the schema that we have built in the past. So you may be asking, hmm, can you change your schema? Because we all know someone who's stuck in their old ways. For some people, it seems impossible to change the schema they have created for different groups of people, how the world works, and how to behave. Well, the answer is yes and no. It's definitely possible to change the way that you look at someone that you might have judged before. And as you gain more experience and learn more about the world, your schema may start to change, and you might start to have a more open mind about the people that you meet and the places that you go. But this comes with one caveat. You have to be open to change. You cannot just read a book and alter the way that you see the world. Adjusting your thinking and opening your mind is a constant process that requires rewriting the story of the world and trying to unlearn harmful stereotypes. And it's definitely not easy. Challenging set beliefs is notoriously difficult and uncomfortable. But it is possible. And with the right intention, you can actually help yourself create a more accurate and unbiased judgment of the world whenever you receive new information. So, as a... Okay, obviously this is, is not a religious video, and it, it doesn't touch on the fact that we can get a religious schema uh, as well. And again, this is always more comfortable to talk about the problem with other people's beliefs and, and the other churches and, and what they're doing. And don't misunderstand me. 
Aspiring to have pure doctrine and to be part of a larger church organization where we can have encouragement and support from one another are both blessings that the Lord provides for us. But we're not saved by our religion. We're rescued because of the faith which God the Holy Spirit works in our heart. And sometimes that faith comes under attack, not from an external source, but from an internal source, our religious schema. The things that we thought were true, the things that we were taught must be this way or that way. I know it's uncomfortable to even suggest anything that we teach or believe could be possibly wrong, but look at one of the applications that we have out of our religion is how often have we looked at other people and completely misjudged them or looked at a situation and got it totally wrong. Not because we fail to have proper insight or allow ourselves enough time to digest what's going on, but because we've been given a mindset, and this is one of my pet peeves, that we good Christians know the right way and, and can certainly point out the wrong ways to live. And in the meantime, what we've lost is God's message of love and how Christ came and paid for their sins as much as he came to pay for ours. I'm not suggesting a compromise on doctrine. What I'm suggesting is an open-mindedness to some of the things that we've learned over time that maybe, maybe there's more to the story than, than what we thought. The transfiguration happens to be one of those situations. And it goes back to this word schema. How did crows even get there? Well, schema is the Greek word. It, it, the English word is scheme. There's only two words in the Greek language that talk about form. One of them is schema, a word which does not appear in the transfiguration account. The only other word in the Greek language for form is morph. And all of a sudden, I have this aha moment going, you know what? God is handing us this amazing lesson, and I've never seen it before. I've never heard it before. That what the disciples continued to see about Jesus was the schema, the one type of form. They only saw him from the outside. They only saw him through the lens of their religion. And that's why they struggled so much with him, even when he's spoon-feeding them the truth. What the lessons do contain is a form of the word morph. You've heard it in other transfigurations lessons, metamorphosis, the changing of the form. For a few fleeting moments, Jesus let the inside come out to the outside. For a few fleeting moments, Peter, James, and John got to see who the real Messiah was. For a few moments, they got to see the glory of God and what that should mean for their day-to-day -day lives. And so when you consider the transfiguration lesson, I'd like you to consider something that's not written into doctrine books or or explain in most transfiguration sermons. Why on earth was God compelled to do this, even though it seems like it didn't really change the disciples? Every single thing that I've cited for you about their misunderstanding has to do with passages that came after the transfiguration, except that first one in Mark. Every other one is post-transfiguration, and they still weren't getting it, even though they had seen this glory. Why? It's the other word. There's schema. They were so ingrained in a false teaching that they absolutely could not see who Jesus was, which then offers an intriguing question about the second half of our lesson. That is, they're walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane and having this long conversation, and Jesus is again trying to lay out for them the truth about Messiah and what his relationship with us is supposed to be. All of a sudden, they have this aha moment. But unfortunately, they still weren't there. The transfiguration was the beginning of the transition out of their religious schema into 
an understanding of the truth. They say, now you don't need to use these illustrations, these pictures, because we know you came from God. And what they're referring to is something earlier in the conversation where, quite honestly, Jesus just read their minds. He's explaining his suffering and death, and they're confused about it, and they don't ask Jesus, but they're talking amongst themselves, and they're asking each other, what does he mean, what does he mean? Jesus just stops the conversation and goes, I know what you're thinking. I know what your questions are. And they go, oh, well, now we know you are Messiah. You were sent by God. But they still are not clear on what it means that he claims to be that promised fulfillment, the rescuer, the savior of the world. They needed to understand that what was important was their faith and not their religion. Okay, about now in a lesson like this, you're going to get the encouragement to study God's word more, to read your Bibles. And of course, I in no way, shape, or form would I dissuade that. But I'm going to ask you something. What are you getting out of that? Now, God uses his powerful word to grow our faith, make it stronger every day. But there's something here that it seems like there's a disconnect. Because the disciples were raised in a culture and a religion where it also encouraged the same things. Study God's word. In fact, in that culture, it was much more prominent, higher expectations. And they still ended up where they were. Their misunderstanding of Messiah and what the relationship with God was supposed to look like. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to venture an answer to that question. What happened? And my best thought process leads me to this, is I think what we've lost is maybe one of the best parts of the disciples' religion. And I've uh, talked about it in previous lessons, but part of that religion was about asking questions. And that whole schema video, it, it dawned on me, you know, as we get older, we think we're so smart, we mature, we grow up, and one of the problems with growing up as a sinful human being is, is we stop asking questions. We don't just stop growing physically, we stop growing mentally and spiritually when we stop asking questions. And dare I say that I think maybe it's time for us to ask some good hard questions, not about the truth of God's word, but maybe about some of our religious understandings. Let me just give you one example from my own life and then I'll let you kind of mull this over and see where the good Lord takes you. I was raised in the church. I was raised as a pastor's son. I, if anybody was privileged to have a good spiritual education, I think I was. But one of the things I grew up was, especially when you get to those passages where Jesus talks about persecution, and by the way, he shared that with the disciples that night, and we have those sections in, in the Gospels, uh, a, a disciple will pick up his cross and carry it, and the way that was interpreted for me is, is we Christians are at a disadvantage in this world. And sadly, I believed it, but it's not true. You see, I was raised with a Christian victim mentality, and maybe you were too, that as the culture crumbles around us, and this world, as broken as it is, just seems to be falling apart every time we turn around, that it's we Christians who are suffering. I don't believe that for a minute anymore. And it, it's taken some good, hard questions in my own mind. So, so what, am I, what do I mean? I now see the world as the victims. They're victims of the devil's lies. They're victims of following a philosophy that is filled with untruths. Whereas we have clear and, and beautiful access to the truth of God's word. If we're willing to dig into it and, and wrestle with it and ask the hard questions and search for the answers. They have a spiritual relationship that is steeped in hatred. Whereas we enjoy a spiritual relationship that's sanctified in love. Tell me, who's the victim here? 
we will enjoy, though we have struggles in this lifetime, I, I won't soft pedal that, but we will enjoy a blessed eternity in the relationship for which we were created with our Creator. They will also have their earthly challenges, but they will suffer an eternal separation from their Creator, and they will, for the rest of forever, lose the concept of love altogether. Who's the victim here? I feel sorry for the world. And if nothing else, it compels me all the more wanting to share the truth, not only with you, but with them as well. Because I've wrestled with this question, who's really the victim here? But now, the more I think about that, it dawns on me, I think I'm asking the wrong question. Not who's the victim, but I'd like to end with this question. Can you explain to me why this holy God, with all of his power and ability, without requiring or needing anything from his creation, why this amazing, brilliant God of ours would choose for one second to love you and to love me? That's the right question. That's a good question. And when we get to our answer through the diving into God's word and the spiritual feeding of our faith, you will have the greatest aha moment of your entire life. Sin. The barrier that causes division between people and separates us from God. If humans are responsible for their actions and commit sins, why would God save them rather than expecting people to answer for themselves? God is love, the giver of life. He created humans to be spiritually and relationally connected with him. But mankind chose to act against God's will, to sin, separating us from God, the source of life. Sin was passed down from generation to generation like a virus, spreading with humanity, separating people from God and one another. God spoke through his prophets, giving new commandments and opportunities to follow his law. But the people always failed. The price of sin, of separating ourselves from God, is death. Since God is perfectly just, he could simply ignore or forgive humanity's sins. God is holy and righteous. His uncompromising nature means he must judge and punish sin. So wouldn't it be up to us to earn God's forgiveness and avoid judgment? The problem is, humans can't keep God's commands. We can't live without sin and we can't redeem ourselves. It would seem like we're doomed. Except God doesn't want his creations to die. He is merciful and loving and wants us to be restored, living with him in full life, beginning with Ibrahim and continuing through other prophets over the centuries. God revealed piece by piece his plan to send the Redeemer who would pay the penalty for mankind's sin. The Redeemer is Jesus. He descended to earth from his place of glory in heaven, took on human form and lived the sinless life we never could. Then Jesus willingly took on our sins, enduring the punishment of death for us once and for all. But he could not be held by death. Jesus rose from the grave, conquering death and sin enabling us to have a restored relationship with God. God loves us 
and because humans aren't capable of restoring themselves, Jesus redeemed us from sin and death so that we might be saved and live with him. Now we must accept sacrifice Jesus made for us to enjoy the freedom of a restored relationship with God.